Living in God's presence is like living near a nuclear power plant. Uh, There is tremendous power that is just humming right in the middle of your community, and that's both amazing and daunting. When things are good, they're really good, but if things go bad, then they get really bad. If you have a nuclear power plant in your backyard, you do not want a meltdown. You want everyone who works there and who visits there to carefully follow every single rule, every single regulation in order to prevent catastrophe. And it's like that here in the book of Leviticus, for the people of God, wandering in the wilderness with the Lord in their midst. The tabernacle was the exact center of their community. And just like a nuclear reactor, it is very visible. It was a a big pavilion that was surrounded by walls and protected by guards with a plume of smoke rising into the sky And that smoke communicated something vitally important that the people needed to understand. God is here. God is here. It's both amazing and daunting. Living right next to God requires care. There is an urgent need for everyone to follow all of God's rules, all of God's regulations. In short, there is an urgent need for a holy ministry. And so as strange as these verses may seem to us, this is a good word. It's a a good word for us to hear this morning, and the message is both simple and relevant. God demands a holy ministry. God's people need a holy ministry, so keep the ministry holy. And with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's read together Leviticus 21 and 22, God's holy word to us. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who's been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire." 
the priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy temple. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has an emission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die. Therefore, when they profane it, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A layperson shall not eat of a holy thing, 
No foreign guest of a priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it. And anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add a fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals, blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar." You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation. They will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a word instructing us in holy ministry. And we pray now that through your spirit, you would speak to us through this word. Illuminate it to our hearts and our minds. Teach us your will and your ways so that we could walk in it. Teach us as well, 
about the mercies that you give to your people in sanctifying us from our sins. Bless us now as we hear your word preached. Speak to us. Dwell in our midst. And let us hear your voice, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So I want you to think of these two chapters that I've just read as sort of a a handbook for holy ministry. These were the rules and regulations that kept things operating well at the tabernacle. And this rules or handbook for a holy ministry begins with God's decree. We hear very clearly in this passage that God demands a holy ministry. God demands a holy ministry. And the holy ministry that God demands includes holy leaders and holy offerings. That's the breakdown of these two chapters, and that's why we kept them together. One chapter is about holy leaders. The other chapter is about holy offerings. Chapter 21 is about holy leaders who are holy in three areas, mourning, marriage, and wholeness. Just run down the verses with me here. Verses 1 through 6 told the priests how to preserve their holiness in mourning and grief. Verses 7 through 9 told the priests how to preserve their holiness in marriage and household management. Verses 10 through 12 of that chapter told the chief priest how to mourn properly, and the chief priest had stricter prohibitions on him than the rest of the priests. Verses 13 through 15 told the chief priests how to marry, again, with stricter prohibitions than the rest. And then verses 16 through 24 told the priests that physical health was essential if they were going to offer offerings to the Lord on the Lord's altar. And now these rules, as we've gone through them and and heard them read aloud, might feel obscure or picky. Uh, They might even feel judgmental to us, but if we study them together, they provide a beautiful picture of holy leadership. Holy leadership, according to Leviticus 21, holy leadership radiates hope. Holy leadership radiates hope. God is life and light and vitality. And so everyone who ministers in his presence should showcase that. They should showcase Hope, hope of life and healing and resurrection. Holy priests demonstrated godly grief, godly hope, even in the midst of their grief. Pagan practices, uh, pagan practices such as cutting off various parts of their hair on their head or the size of their beard or uh, by making cuts on their bodies in uh, in the spirit of the dead, to, uh, to mourn the dead. These were pagan practices that were prohibited. Likewise, contact with dead bodies was prohibited. They were supposed to grieve with godly hope, especially the high priest. The high priest, as we heard in these verses, was forbidden from going to any funeral at all, except, uh, as the rest of the scriptures testify, except for the funeral of his wife. Unlike the other priests, he could not alter his appearance at all over the death 
of a loved one, and that would have been a costly sacrifice. I'm sure hard for his heart to to do, but the costly sacrifice had a redemptive purpose. His physical appearance, the high priest's physical appearance, showed people their ultimate hope, that God's presence banishes death forever. So the people needed to look at the leadership and see hope. Also, holy leadership radiates faithfulness. Holy leadership radiates faithfulness. The priests' marriages and families were meant to showcase faithfulness. Marrying a prostitute would obviously show that the priests didn't care about God's righteous standards. Marrying a divorced woman might bring the priesthood into disrepute if the divorce hadn't been proper. And this also prevented the priests from uh, having an affair with someone and then demanding that she get divorced so that they could get married. This was kind of a power check on the priests. Similarly, if the divorced woman or widow already had children, then it would also raise questions that the people of Israel would be wondering, like, would those children get to be priests? And that could create a priestly scandal. And it was the same with unfaithful children. Uh, In the ancient Near East, prostitution was usually linked with some sort of uh, temple worship. And so if the daughter of the priest became a prostitute, it would suggest that the temple or the tabernacle had become a brothel. And that's obviously not going to work. And so that is why the punishment for her was so severe, what we hear in the scriptures. All of this highlights the need clear need for the leadership to radiate faithfulness, especially the high priest, who was called to an even higher standard than the rest of the priests regarding marriage. The people needed to look at the leadership and see faithfulness. And finally, holy leadership radiates wholeness. Holy leadership radiates wholeness. The priests who offered sacrifices on the altar needed to be physically whole. And we heard a list of all of the deformities and disabilities that disqualified a priest from serving in that capacity, serving uh, and, and offering, providing a sacrifice on God's altar. And to our ears, that sounds harsh, even discriminatory, But if we look carefully at the passage, God's grace still abounds for these individuals. In other cultures of the time, priests with deformities were rejected from the priesthood outright. Not in Israel, here. In Israel, priests with deformities were still priests. They were still holy. They still got to eat the holy food, even the most holy food that was given to the Lord. They were still welcomed by God into his presence. God considered them beloved children. And so we might wonder, why couldn't they serve at the altar? And that's because the altar ceremony was a visual representation Uh, a visual portrayal of both creation and redemption. 
Again, the, the priest making this sacrifice on the altar, the smoke going up into the heavens, all of it was a picture of, uh, of everything that we had in the Garden of Eden and everything we will have in God's consummated kingdom. It's intimacy and forgiveness and renewal. In the original creation, there were no disabilities, And in redemption, all disabilities will be healed by the Lord. And so in this visual representation, the priest needed to look the part. Again, a visual embodiment of redeemed wholeness, physical wholeness, which then pointed to moral and spiritual wholeness. The people needed to look at the leadership and see wholeness. This is what holy leadership looks like. Hopeful, faithful, and whole. God demands holy leadership. God also demands holy offerings. And that's what chapter 22 is about, holy offerings. And here's what we learn in these verses. Verses 1 through 16, holy offerings are pure, only handled by priests who were ceremonially clean, only eaten by ceremonially clean members of the priest's family. Because these offerings were God's special possessions, only they they needed to be kept pure in this way. And then we can move on, verses 17 through 25. Holy offerings are perfect. Only perfect animals were suitable for sacrifice. The reason, again, is that these offerings were God's special possessions. They were gifts that were given to the king out of love and thanksgiving and confession. Uh, An understanding that this person needs forgiveness. And in that scenario, giving God anything less than the best would be a major insult. The gift needed to be perfect. Verses 26 through 28, holy offerings are prudent. The animal that we hear was permitted to live with its mother for seven days after birth, allowing the mother to have time with her offspring and also allowing the shepherd to have time to determine the animal's health. But then we hear in verse 28, you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. Killing both the mother and her young in the same day, it would just be irresponsible. It would immediately impact the health of Israel's flocks and the longevity of them to be able to provide sacrifice after sacrifice. And so this is a fascinating window into God's heart. Here's what we see. God is not a tyrant, God is is not obsessed with greedily amassing wealth while his people suffer in increasing poverty. No, God says, give your best, but be prudent about it. As the Old Testament scholar John Hartley writes, God encourages generous giving. He does not encourage foolish giving. Holy offerings are prudent. And finally, verses 29 and 30, holy offerings are proper. Verses 29 and 30, and when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted 
It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. And remember what these offerings were about. The offering of thanksgiving was a feast with God. It was a lively, festive, deeply meaningful, spiritual encounter with the Lord. And it was rare, uh, a special experience. And so in these verses, God says, act like it. Don't treat this holy meal that you're enjoying just like another common meal. Don't try to save the leftovers. Don't try to take some to be a snack on the road. Don't cheapen the offering by confusing it with the common. Make the offering properly. And so this is the holy ministry that God demands. Holy leaders who radiate hope and faithfulness and wholeness. Holy offerings that are pure, perfect, prudence, and proper. But now we might ask ourselves, why does God care? I, I think we can have in our minds uh, an idea that God is stingy uh, or just so concerned about picky little details. Why does God care? We might even ask, why can't God just be happy with whatever we give him? And however we give it. And when you ask the question that way, uh, the question really answers itself, doesn't it? Why can't God just be happy with whatever we bring? Well, who is God? Remember who God is. We've already sung about it today. The Lord is king. He's the creator. He is the Lord. And as verse 33 in chapter 22 reminds us, he's the redeemer. The one who rescues us from slavery. He is our savior. God demands a holy ministry because he is holy. 21 verse 8 says that you shall sanctify the priest for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. Or 22, verse 2, speak to Aaron and his sons that they may abstain from the holy offerings of the people of Israel so that they do not profane my holy name. This is not arrogance. It's appropriate. Ministry serves God. It is for him. It is right that a holy God gets a holy ministry. So the problem is not with God's demands. The problem tends to be with our hearts. Without these demands written for us in scripture, very likely God's people would offer him less than the best. And so these verses challenge us to believe not only that God demands a holy ministry, but that God deserves a holy ministry he deserves the best from us. A holy ministry properly honors our holy God. But also, because God is kind, there's blessing to us as well. A holy ministry blesses us. God's people need a holy ministry for two reasons. Protection and connection. Protection and connection. A holy ministry protects God's people. 
just take chapter 22, verses 14, and 14 through 16. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt. If a priest failed to guard God's holy food from someone else and that other person, that non-priest, ate of it, that person then owed an expensive repayment or they were guilty of sin. Or we could take chapter 22, verse 20. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. If the people offered an imperfect, blemished animal for a sacrifice, it wouldn't atone for them. God would not accept it. Or chapter 22, verses 32, failure to keep God's commands profaned God's holy name. These were costly errors. They magnified sin and guilt. They increased the probability of some sort of catastrophic discipline. Remember the power plant analogy. You, when you're living near a nuclear power plant, you have to avoid errors and a holy ministry provided that protection. When they did their job, the priests taught the people how to avoid sin and they inspected the sacrifices, and they guarded the holy things of the Lord against improper actions or even just careless mistakes. And when they did their job, the people honored the teaching of the priests and supported the priests in their pursuit of holiness. A holy ministry offers protection. But you don't build a nuclear power plant just to make people be careful or keep them on their toes, you build a nuclear power plant to connect people to life-giving power. And God didn't move into the neighborhood just to make people be on their best behavior. God moved into the neighborhood to bless them with himself. And so a holy ministry doesn't just provide protection, a holy ministry facilitates connection with God. Picture what's happening here. The people are coming to the tabernacle with their animals and their joys and their sorrows, joy for deliverance, sorrow for sin, Longing in their heart for absolution, needing great help. And so whatever the reason was that each individual that we can imagine coming to the Lord in this text, the people are coming to meet with God. They are expecting an encounter with the Lord. They are anticipating uh, this mouth-watering interaction with God, a vibrant, visible, spiritual experience of sacrifice and blood and smoke, all of which told them a sacred message. God loves you. God is pleased with you. God delights in you. 
God welcomes you into his presence. God's people need, we all need this deep personal connection with the Lord, and it happens through a holy ministry. A holy ministry connects people to God. We've confessed this already this morning. Worship is a means of grace. The word, the sacraments, prayer, these are God's means of grace. The outward and ordinary ways that Christ communicates the benefits of redemption to his people. Communicates, and not just visibly or audibly to our ears, but spiritually communicates them to our hearts. We receive from the Lord blessing in the means of grace. A holy ministry offers protection and connection, which leads to the big takeaway from our text this morning, keep the ministry holy. God demands it, and God deserves it. God's people need it, so keep the ministry holy. How? It's relatively simple. Leaders practice godliness in grief, marriage, sexuality, family life, and spiritual service, and people practice godliness in giving and living. Those are the the main things for the leaders and for the people. And then additionally, everyone all together support each other and keep each other accountable. Isn't it interesting that all of these verses, even the ones just to the high priest, were spoken in the midst of all the people? God said these verses to everyone, which tells us that every single person in Israel had a hand in preserving the ministry's holiness. It's not just for a select group of powerful men. These instructions were for the whole community. It took the whole community to guard the ministry. As one commentator, Jeffrey Harper, puts it, when it comes to Leviticus, there are no secrets. There are no secrets, no backroom deals, nothing that the priests are hiding from the people, no secrets, everything is out in the open because everybody has a hand in protecting the holiness of the ministry and that's how it should be for us. For us, just just read 1 Peter 5 or 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1 or James chapter 3. God still calls spiritual leaders to practice godliness in grief, marriage, sexuality, family life, and spiritual service. Or you can read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, or Hebrews 13, or Titus chapter 3. God still calls his people to practice godliness in giving and living. And so, Christ Church of Arlington, this is God's word for us. Let's keep the ministry holy. Let's keep the ministry holy. Elders, leaders, 
God calls you, God calls us to a high standard of holiness. We need to live so that our lives radiate hope and faithfulness and moral wholeness so that when the people of Christ Church of Arlington look at the elders, they can see God in action. They can see redemption taking place in our lives. Again, as we go about our lives with hope and faithfulness and wholeness, moral wholeness in this case. And and it's important that you conduct your ministry as a service to the Lord, your service on the session. It's not just another meeting. Uh, It's more than organizational leadership, and it's not for the prestige. It is spiritual service to God and spiritual service to God's people. This is God's call to the leadership here at Christ Church of Arlington and congregants. To the congregation of Christ Church of Arlington, God still calls you to offer pure, perfect, prudent, and proper gifts to the Lord. And so bring your offerings and and bring yourselves to the Lord generously, of course prudently, and joyfully. Give yourselves to God. Your offerings here are not just simply tax-deductible donations to another charity. The church isn't a charity. It's, it's, a, it's a ministry of God's people. Your time that you spend here, it's not simply volunteering your services with a nonprofit. The church isn't a nonprofit. We are a ministry. And so you are, as, as a people, participating in God's ministry here. And so let's partner together in mutual support, mutual accountability, mutual holiness. After all, we as God's people are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9, and our bodies are a living sacrifice, a living offering, holy and pleasing to God. Romans 12.1, let's keep our ministry holy. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we fail? That's the daunting question, isn't it? In the Old Testament, things got so bad between God and his people that God had to exile them. He had to cast them out of their land and out of his presence. This was the catastrophic meltdown of the Old Testament ministry. Will that happen to us? Will that happen to us when we stumble in our leadership or in our offerings? Thankfully, no. No, it won't. Because now we have a perfectly holy high priest who gave a perfectly holy offering. We have Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the head of the church, the church's one foundation that we sang about earlier, and Jesus will save us from that catastrophe. Hebrews 7 tells us Jesus' qualifications as a priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Hebrews 10 tells us the results of Jesus' offering. We have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Holy priests, holy offering, holy ministry forever. Jesus achieves what the Old Testament represents, healing, forgiveness, restoration, resurrection. Jesus unites us to God and nothing and no one can ever sever that connection. And so we do not need to fear spiritual exile, some sort of catastrophic spiritual meltdown of the church's ministry because Jesus's ministry will never fail. He keeps us secure. He protects us. He connects us with the Lord and he makes us holy. We see that even in our passage. Six times in this passage, the promise of holiness by grace. Did you hear it? As we read this passage over and over again in 21.8, every single section in our text that commands a holy ministry ends with the Lord saying, I'll make your ministry holy. I will make your ministry holy. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. A holy ministry is first and foremost an act of God's grace. And so for us on this side of Good Friday and this side of Easter Sunday, we can strive for holiness with confidence Because there's grace for us when we fail, and it's by grace that we have any successes. So, let's keep the ministry holy. Keep the ministry holy. Keep our ministry holy so that we can continue to enjoy the vibrant, visible, spiritual connection that you have with God through Christ as you serve him both on Sundays and every day throughout your life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for this word of a holy ministry. It is a high calling and one that we, uh, one that we, we find daunting. And so we thank you for Christ and we thank you for his ministry that won't fail us. Thank you for providing us the perfect priest, the perfect offering. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself to us and for uniting us to God through your spirit so that we can enjoy you forever. We pray now that you would strengthen us through that same spirit. That you would give us the power and inclination to be holy 
in our giving, our living, our lives, our work as your priests, and our bodies as offerings for you. Let us be holy so that we can enjoy you. And thank you for making us holy by grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.